Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings and felicitations, children of technology. The immortal words of Pete Steele there with Carnivore. Yes, this is Alan Averill. This is Agitators Anonymous. This is episode 98, my friends. We're almost at the ton the nuclear ton almost at 100 episodes do i change to season two who knows tune in to find out other such amazing and interesting things indeed episode 98 mutually assured destruction it sounds like a thrash metal title it probably is somewhere out there you pull out some obscure record from 1985 on noise records and you will find something of the same title as an awful lot of 80s metal bands were obsessed with um, that very topic, nuclear assault, nuclear war, um, the dystopia the, of the nuclear wasteland that followed a fallout, followed the attack. And if you were a child of the 80s, um, then you probably, or a child of the 70s indeed, uh, but I remember being a child of the 1980s and seeing cartoons. We were told in school about... Um, about such ideas as mutually assured destruction. We were taught a bit about the Cold War. You were even told what would happen if there was a nuclear um, attack, how you would deal with that, the fallout. In fact, there was a very famous movie called The Day After, which was released in 1983. And the first half of this movie introduces the conflict between NATO forces the second half depicts the consequences of a Soviet bomb dropped on Kansas City and other American cities. Um, and it's a very, very stark movie. Um, it's sort of stripped of much of the uh, flag waving and all sorts of other, um, I suppose, nationalistic hyperbole that would have followed most movies like that. And is a very stark depiction of what would happen after a nuclear attack. Um, and the director, his name was Nicholas Meyer, held little back in his um, view or in his interpretation of what would happen. And it scared you as a kid. It certainly did scare you. And you'll probably know in the last podcast I discussed why 
the conflict in Ukraine, why this is a little bit different to every other conflict, why I addressed I addressed the concept of how come this one is getting more column inches than X um, proxy war, or what about Syria, what about Afghanistan, what about many, many other countries? Well, I suppose the unknown quotient here is the nuclear um, the nuclear angle. And there's nothing you can do to avoid that. There's nothing you can do to avoid this particular conflict being having the ability to escalate, to escalate somewhere else where those other conflicts couldn't. And therefore, that is what makes it more relevant, more prescient, um, and should have all of our attention fixed a little bit more on what's happening. Whether anyone likes it or not, whether it fits into our opinions about woke politics or the culture war, um, this threat of um, nuclear conflagration changes the game, certainly, and should make people place a few of those ideas on the shelf, and we should try and find some greater context for the understanding of what's happening. What is mutually assured destruction? Okay, so one of the first things is we're now um, into week two of the war in Ukraine. Certainly that was not in Putin's plans. And it certainly feels that doing a podcast on anything else right now would be like sticking your head in the sand. The reaction to last week's podcast was overwhelmingly positive, if I can phrase it like that, in such dark times. Um, And is there another metal podcast out there dealing with other such issues? I don't know. It doesn't seem to be. Now, this may be because they are wiser than me or they ain't got the guts. I don't know. You decide. But this week, I want to try and add a few more angles to the debate. Consider the energy um, context. As you've all will probably have noticed, um, your petrol going up, your um, gas and energy bills will be higher. Um, Ukraine and Russia supply wheat to vast uh, um, areas of the world. And I know you. some people are listening in those areas because I see the numbers. Um, And so all of these things are going to go up. There are many, many, many side effects, sidebars, which force inflation, for example, during wartime. I'm going to try and look at that. I'm going to maybe address some of what I see as the cultural failings of the modern right or conservative side of the culture war, who I think are making some very grave and dumb decisions right now. And but first, I want to consider the term mutually assured destruction. Um, zero-sum games and how all of those things, game theory, fed into the Cold War. And if we are entering Cold War II, how this will affect everyone now. But I will say, if you can find this movie the day after, I would recommend taking a look at it. Um, The movie, many people, many critics aimed to try and censor um, the horrors that were within um, and Many people warned that the images would be too much and too graphic for children. Certainly, they haunted my dreams um, when I saw it at maybe nine or ten years old in the mid-80s. And it prompted many, many school children of the time to begin writing letters to presidents of the time. I suppose in a similar way to um, Greta Thunberg, maybe. A little bit similar, maybe, in the sense that um, young people began to be galvanized, to be emotionally moved by some of the scenes. And they were very, very graphic scenes within this movie that really haunted a generation of people within the Cold War um, who grew up in the Cold War. And it seemed to really, I suppose, grow up society, maybe. Is that the right word? After sort of periods of economic growth 
um, especially in America. Okay, in the 1970s in Europe, things were a little bit different in the early 1980s, but certainly the paranoia of the Cold War. Don't forget, you have East Germany and West Germany at the time. Germany hadn't reunified, um, the Berlin Wall hadn't fallen, the end of communism hadn't happened. So the reality of this Cold War was very, very stark, and it was far, it seemed far, far nearer, even though the world now, I suppose, is way more integrated. And we do, as I said in the last podcast, we are told very often we are global citizens and therefore, in my opinion, citizens of nowhere. But that's a totally different argument. Let's not get sidetracked. But mutually assured destruction. This is the idea. This is the idea that um, a full-scale use of nuclear weapons by two or more opposing sides would, of course, annihilate the other, both attacker and defender. So, in a sense, everyone loses. Um, and so it's based on a, the theory of deterrence. And you can see this is the reason why North Korea is attempting to develop nuclear weapons, because once you have them, you have the deterrent. The same with Iran. Um, if Iran gets nuclear weapons, then also it has the deterrent, and that stops it being attacked so to speak. Now, there's one thing to develop the technology to create a nuclear warhead. It's a very other, it's a very different technology to launch it. They are two different things. So the development of uranium, for example, doesn't necessarily mean that you can fling that across the border into some other country. That's a slightly different technology. But it's all about deterrent. Um, and this is the theory um, that the weapons you have deter the enemy from attacking. So the theory, Mutually Assured Destruction, commonly abbreviated to MAD, this was coined by a man called Donald, Donald, there's the Irish inside of me thinking, Donald, Donald, sorry, Donald, um, Donald Brennan, who was um, working at the Hudson Institute in 1962, um, and he deliberately, of course, gave it that acronym, um, spelling out how irrational and insane it was. But that if each side call, if each side of the argument holds weapons that are capable of destroying society, well, it's of course irrational because no one wins, but they are both the deterrent. So as I said, as a kid watching this famous this famous movie, and you should go and take a look about take a look at it. Um, do young I would ask the question: Do young people understand the same things now? Being a child of the eighties, um, of course your relationship to nuclear energy was framed. In Ireland, we had Sellafield, which was, um, I think, in Wales. Um, there was an accident at the Sellafield plant, the nuclear plant um, in the um, west of England, or west of the United Kingdom, which had nuclear, limited nuclear um, effects across the Irish Sea uh, here in Ireland. Um, and so you were very much aware of things that happened like happened like that. For example, of course, you've all seen the Chernobyl. You've all seen the Chernobyl uh, program, the documentaries, the um, the series that was on HBO, etc. Um, and so your mind was very much molded and framed by nuclear accidents. And of course, the Fukushima power plant, as it when it the huge accident in twenty twelve, I think put the nail in the coffin for many, uh, much of the West, to try and move away from nuclear energy. But of course, a war 
really refocuses all those things. And you can cl see clearly now with the rise in energy prices um, in gas and oil, as oil is predicted to reach $300 a barrel, that this will have huge knock-on effects that renewable energy sources will not be able to meet. But that's a different argument. Mutually assured destruction. Like I said, it sounds like an 80s thrash metal movie. But it is modeled on a sort of game theory. Um, um, the idea that you're modeling interactions between actors and agents. Let's take on one side the Soviet Union and on one side the USA. It's about predicting outcomes. Um, that's the game theoretical that was behind the original Cold War nuclear standoff, let's call it. You analyze patterns and you are predicting the percentages. A zero-sum game. You often hear this in relation to uh, modern politics when somebody says, well, they had no way out. It was a zero-sum game. Which means a zero-sum game is like a fixed victory in that one has to win, one has to lose. Now, for me, this ties a little bit into our, um, I suppose, the sort of binary concepts of good and evil that we are uh, told or taught through um, the modern culture wars or through the modern media. At the moment, we're being told Putin bad, us good, NATO good, etc., etc. It's a binary choice, good versus evil. So one has to win, one has to lose. And it's a kind of byproduct of a very simple framing of um, the news by the, uh, by the modern sort of news media cycle that wishes to try and explain complex ideas in this binary choice. Adam Curtis does this, analyzes this very well. Um, on any of his documentaries, good um, the century of the self, for example, how the um, I suppose the media class decided that it was far easier to play on our um, innate, I suppose, animalistic understandings of things and try and reduce complicated concepts or arguments down to this binary choice. Not that that exactly ties in with game theoretical, but what it says is that it's about calculating outcomes. So who is a rational actor? And this is something that we have to ask in a modern context. Um, who is the rational actor? So what we are attempting to do is to analyze Putin. Is Putin a rational actor? And you take a look at some of the imagery that we see lately. He seems to be sitting Dr. Evil style um, 20, 30 feet from all of his um, adjutants, all the people around him. Apparently he has um, become very, very scared of COVID, has very great COVID fears. Analyze the footage properly. It sometimes appears his hands are shaking. Maybe this is just me seeing something in that footage that doesn't exactly sit there. But he doesn't seem to be quite the sane or relatively more sane character he cut a decade ago. Is he um, perhaps now suffering from the fact that he's removed slowly but surely very much like a Stalin? or many other dictators or tyrants. He's removed the people who would be more or less on some equal level, or maybe just under that he would listen to, that he would take advice from. Um, so part of the game theoretical of looking at what's happening now is analyzing, is Putin a rational actor? And then trying to say, think or to consider what would his next move be? Now, some of you will have been looking at uh, Russia today or at images of, um, or maybe not images, but at least analyzing some of the um, news media that's coming out for Russians. And some of that has a very religious context. Um, there is many discussions, um, I think, 
priests and religious scholars have had some of the airwaves. And a man not known for his deference to religion has been adopting some religious language. Now, that is something that should worry the West. It should worry NATO. Because once you adopt religious context into all of this, does this mean you are, can still be considered a rational actor? If we take, for example, the idea that um, if we take, and this is one of the problems that people in the West have, is that they don't take um, religious people at their word. They don't really believe that ISIS fighters think that they're going to however many Vestal Virgins in heaven. They Surely they can't believe that. So they don't take people of faith at their word. And this is a big a big problem of the sort of secular, atheistic um, nature of modern Western society. So, is are the religious rational actors? Because obviously, if you believe in an afterlife, for example, then um, maybe blowing a country to kingdom come feels a little bit less like finality. So, if you were, for example, to give ISIS nuclear weapons or access to nuclear weapons, would they simply just press the button and launch that at Israel? Um, therefore, it, the prediction of your game theoretical goes out, it alters when you take in that context. Um, so that's the first point I think you have to consider about the game theory of mutually assured destruction or the game theory that goes into um, uh, geopolitics. And specifically the geopolitics of this situation once Putin um, it's clear, has uh, mentioned the nuclear deterrent or the nuclear context. So the second thing I think we have to consider is, is the information perfect? Because if you're playing a game, for example, as in game theory, you're playing chess, you can see all of the pieces. But in a conflict, in a conflict, conflict, conflict like this, you cannot see the whole board. There are too many components. So how do you take in all of the information. And of course, information is a word we hear constantly right now. Misinformation, information. And what is misinformation? What is information? The ability, I suppose, through CRISPR and deep fake and all those kind of things to create news um, sitting in your own front room is only, I mean, that technology is already here. So therefore, I suppose if you consider things in terms of um, the original invention of the game theory, 1950s, 1960s, this has changed as well. And of course, the third thing is that life is simply not a game. It sounds silly, um, but civilians dying is not a game. Of course, Stalin said one death is a tragedy, a million is just a statistic, but it brings you back to the War Games movie. If any of you haven't seen the 1980s movie War Games, I re totally recommend that. It's a very, very clever movie. Um, that had, again, a big impact on me as a kid. I saw it in the cinema. And the game Tic-Tac-Toe is used as an almost um, a sort of example of the game theory. So the idea is, if you back Putin into a corner where he cannot win um, or cannot, you know, where he has no way out, I think this is a very uh, risky thing because this evokes the irrational. Um, like n nuclear war, for example, is a win for no one. No nuclear war, um, while it being uh, terribly grim for Ukraine, um, is about the most very dark rational conclusion. So 
if you consider those things, um, what are the concessions we must make to tyrants? Um, is there ability for both sides to win or both sides to lose together? That's the, um, I think that's the NATO calculation. Um, because in reality, you cannot fully model, mo ma mathematically model people's behaviors. Um, I think the COVID restriction uh, models, um, and of course, who sourced them or funded them, but of course, those COVID m uh, restrictions um, that were modeled, the SAGE modeling, all those kind of things, they were based on, um, again, mathematical theoreticals. But they don't always, they can't always flag up every aspect of human nature. So where does this place us in a situation in Ukraine? Um, you see many people in the West demanding no-fly zones. And I think that actually um, a lot of people don't really understand what a no-fly zone is. I mean, I think that a no-fly zone is in everything but essence um, war. Because it's basically stating that Russian planes flying over the Ukraine will be shot down by NATO. Um, it's not really intervention light, as many people seem to think. I've heard people, many people going, oh, we should implement a no-fly zone. And unfortunately, it's kind of an impossibility. So this leaves Ukraine in a rather desperate position, um, like that of Chechnya. Does Ukraine simply fall into becoming the new Afghanistan? And certainly listening to people, even I heard Hillary Clinton discussing this, and she seemed almost gleeful at the prospect, the prospect of, oh, you know, look what the Afghanis did to resist the Russians. Of course, forgetting um, the disastrous American withdrawal from Afghanistan um, last year and the fact that this proxy war lasted for 20 30 years. I mean, from the inception of the Mujahideen and onwards, it killed millions of people. This, of course, doesn't seem to enter the, um, the context of someone like that. So all these things lead me to wonder, has Russia actually messed this up? Or rather, has Putin messed this up? The economy is collapsing. The economy is absolutely in freefall, which, of course, hurts normal Russian, everyday Russian people. I also think it's rather... I don't see the sense in a lot of the Russophobia that's moving through society at the moment and banning opera singers from singing, banning sports people from this and that and the other. Um, these, this does no good. I think it just creates um, a sort of reactionary idea within Russia that, of course, sets them into an us versus them mentality. I mean, was every Irish person to blame? Um, for the bombings the IRA did, for example, in the 1970s and 1980s. Certainly Irish people who were living in England at the time will tell you the level of hostility aimed at them. Not all Israelis support, for example, their government. And so I think the idea of taking it out um, on normal Russian people throughout the world is just a kind of nonsensical and a sort of rather immature way of doing things. And I would... Um, wish people would hold their counsel before doing such things. Of course, all of this, some things have an effect, um, like the sort of the um, closing down of bank accounts, the closing down of finances, um, putting the um, squeeze on the oligarchs who are close to Putin. Of course, not with everyday Russian people doing this and that and the other. I can understand the logic behind saying, saying you know, other f football teams putting pressure and Poland, for example, as a football team um, saying, no, we won't play Russia. I mean, of course, football, 
whether anyone really likes it or acknowledges it or not, is a huge, a huge international financial force and a huge force in the world. And so therefore, um, banning Russia from that, for example, has some effect. But some of the other measures just seem punitive and ridiculous to me. So what does this mean? What does this mean? It's very hard to say. How long will this all be going through the news cycle? Um, normally, we see that something huge like this dominates the news cycle for maybe three, maybe four weeks. Of course, we just had COVID, just had the pandemic, and um, I haven't really even discussed the fact that um, some countries are still pushing through, pushing forward with restrictions. Ireland, of course, has none right now, um, but France, Germany, Austria, Canada, um, the, the country, it seems, with the most students of the World Economic Forum are still pushing through with their booster regime, um, even though they could just ring up, uh, ring up Ireland and say, hey, you guys are now a scientific model um, of whatever you want to call it, the waves, the infections, blah, blah, blah. How's it going over there? And we could go, it's grand. You don't need to do it anymore. Grand so, etc. But of course they aren't. So what's clear is that um, any countries still dealing with rules, restrictions, regulations, a form of lockdown or any of those kind of things. This is a political decision. This is not based on anything else by now. I mean, of course, it doesn't really need saying, but but perhaps while all of our attention is focused on the Ukraine, um, many of these things are still happening. And like I said in the last podcast, I have the feeling that we're going to lurch from emergency to emergency, disaster to disaster, always into the red. Life is not really going to go be allowed to sink down to the yellow and people are going to have a bit of calm, um, a summer off, in my opinion. Of course, and you have the German um, health minister warning of a summer wave of new infections. I mean, really, does anyone believe this by now? Anyway, what will happen, though, and we can even see this on something as, um, I suppose, minor and trivial in the context of what this podcast is about, about the tour with Primordial and the dates of which are listed below our tour with Swallow the Sun in Rome, we can see day to day the energy costs of petrol, of putting a nightliner on the road to bring the band around Europe, getting um, more and more and more costly, which of course brings down any kind of money you might make. And it's just as an example, the music industry, which is of course um, the industry that I'm nearest to, and know, I suppose, in theory, the most about, although you may question that, and you may have very justified questions about that. Um, those continued costs will be passed on to flights. They'll be passed on to um, the van journey from point A to point B. And you really do have to wonder, um, as long as this goes on, and this energy war um, that's going to be affecting us all, and I don't see any end of this in sight as oil, continues to rise at two, three hundred um, euro a barrel. It reminds me, well, even though I was not around then, but in 1973, the oil crisis changed, I suppose, the um, situation and the relationship between the Middle East and the West. But um, it will affect every aspect of our lives and it really will change the music industry. For example, vinyl vinyl pressings, pressing your album on vinyl. I'm digressing now and rambling a little bit, but I mean, this is why you're here. It's Agitators Anonymous, right? And this will affect small uh, businesses, small record labels, the shipping of things like 
vinyl, the pressing and shipping of vinyl, you could be looking at things in six or nine months hitting 40, 50, 60 euro for a vinyl. Um, as I said, the profit margins might make touring on some level, unless you're just willing to play for T-shirts, it will make that very, very difficult. But this remains to be seen. But I sense that this is what happens as the energy war is going to continue. And what a mistake it was of Europe to make itself um, over 50% dependent on Ukrainian and Russian gas and oil. This, as we can see, makes no sense. But of course, then this presents many other complicated questions about um, about fracking, about nuclear energy and all sorts of other things. But there's nothing like a war to um, put the middle class perspectives of society in a more starker view, because certainly a war and the energy crisis that are going to come with it are going to affect working class people very greatly. Um, and while you will get celebrities telling you that, oh, you know, we can we can use this as a way to implement electric cars or, oh, we'll have to forsake a holiday or two. You know, it's not really going to affect them. It's not really going to affect the top one percent or two or three or four or five percent of people generally who are those who are going to be busy giving out the lectures to the working class. But it's going to have huge knock on effects to people who have to. Um, use all of these energy things, not to mention heating their homes, etc. It does sound churlish to complain about them, but I did say off the top I was going to have a look a little bit at energy and what that might mean. But has Putin messed this up? Has he really messed this up? It would seem two weeks in um, that, as I said in the podcast last week, that he was hoping for a sort of um, just a kind of a weekend, a weekend away, a weekend break in Ukraine and come out the other side um, with a new piece of land and it seems a new piece of real estate oligarchical real estate um, but it seems that being bogged down in the fighting now um, could bring him to the um, discussion table it could mean we try and find a diplomatic end to this which would give Russia which maybe would split Ukraine and give Russia the eastern side and the Western side remain uh, independent and Ukrainian and move further towards NATO. Um, because, you know, we did, Ukraine did ask to join NATO in 2008, and we said, yeah, probably, probably so. I mean, I use the surreptitious we here. And then we didn't let them in. Of course, this would have been pushing NATO right onto the borders with Russia, which from a Russian perspective was unacceptable. But this was after we had asked them to give up their nuclear arms in the 1990s, um, as they had 1700 warheads there. And I return to my earlier comment about deterrent. This certainly would have been something of a deterrent. Um, and why was the West surprised with what had happened? If you look back at Chechnya, look back at Georgia, of course, also look back at Syria, where Putin sort of elbowed Obama out of the way and went, let me take care of this. I got this. Um, why were we surprised? As I said before on the podcast, and it's been easy to say, but I think the West has been living in a kind of dream world for 20 years. It's all sort of blue sky thinking and woke politics and discussions of equity and whatever was the best Twitter soundbite and distracted by rather quite selfish, narcissistic micro arguments. We've been ignoring history, in my opinion, and the grim reality of what that often looks like. And that, unfortunately, whether we thought we'd outgrown this or whether we thought we'd emerged from the 20, 
20th century into the 21st and everything was going to be unicorns and rainbows or whatever else, blue sky thinking. History, unfortunately, very often is the terrible sight of bomb cities and lines and lines of refugees moving across from one border to the other. It is not about these micro arguments. Um, and so we have to consider, is the post-Cold War era of, I suppose, moralistic neutrality that the West has um, decided upon, is that over? We see Germany talking about rearming. We talk about Sweden and Finland joining NATO, all these kind of things. This should alarm people who have, I suppose it does alarm people who thought that we'd got past this and have a more holistic um, approach to life, I suppose. Is that the wrong word? Is that the right word? I'm not sure. But I think we do have to kind of get real. And that's not meant in a hawkish sense. But you have you do get the sense that in the last few weeks, this has awoken um, something within Europe or the West as is pulled together to try and consider sanctions and what this might mean. Does this mean a new Cold War? But like I said before, you do wor worry terribly that this will only last a certain amount of time in the news cycle before the very great weight of inertia that you can feel definitely in everyone who's just been so tired of two years, two and a bit years of pandemic and having to do all of the um, jump through the hoops of outrageous bureaucracy to deal with that um, over something that, let's be honest, is long since over. Um, how long are we going to deal with that? Um, will we want to just move on and accept that Ukraine becomes the new Afghanistan, sacrifice it on the altar of the news cycle, because our own tiredness and, like I said, inertia. Uh, I do love this word, inertia. I hadn't used it in such a long time, and then it popped up in a Mugwa song title, and I was like, oh, nice. I wish I'd used that in a song I'd written myself. And so we wait for the next tragedy, wait for the next emergency. Will we just shrug our shoulders and wait? It's very, very hard to say what we will do. But there is something else I kind of wanted to address. And some people have, you know, messaged me and said, how come you always criticize the left and don't criticize the right that much? I said, well, I criticize what I see as making sense or not making sense. And I suppose when you take into account things like culture, um, the culture wars or woke politics, um, this is how we define many of those things as, you know, new left, new right, et cetera, et cetera, both of which kind of spurious terms that don't mean a lot to me. Really, like I said, and I've said many times before, I consider myself politically homeless. But one of the things I've noticed um, among some commentators on the right, and I think is incredibly misgiven, and that is to somehow consider um, Putin as some sort of shining white knight standing up for um, culturally, cultural and family values. Um, it seems terribly, terribly short-sighted and just wrong-headed to um, consider that Putin is standing up for something religious. He's standing up for family. And therefore, um, maybe there's something that the new alt-right sees, sees they can align themselves with um, morally on some level. I think it's incredibly wrong-headed and just, well, I've said that twice now. Um, he just invaded a sovereign nation. That is the most important concept of this, of this um, emergency that we are being all being forced to take a very stark and grim look at, just invaded the sovereign nation and is busy bombing women and children. So 
whether you think or don't think that he represents or aligns with some of your family values, because I'm pretty sure at the end of the day, he doesn't. He's got things happening in his mansions that would make you certainly um, rethink those ideas. And he's just using the religious element um, to galvanize an element of old Russian society to uh, swallow his propaganda. Um, I think it's incredibly wrongheaded. And that's, well, that's my opinion on that. But at the same time, I've, al I've also seen people who um, a couple of years ago would have considered themselves um, very, very opposed to war, sounding now hawkish. People on the left um, who were maybe once standing in a democratic position um, now talking again about no-fly zones, this kind of thing. And I, I think some part, of some part of all of this is performative. It's as if we've not shaken off the vestiges. Um, we've, not sh we've not climbed out of the clown suit that we were all made to wear during the last um, months of the pandemic and are still, um, you know, still shaking our rattles and making noises and, you know, whistles and bells and whatever else. We haven't really climbed out of that mentality. And because we get spurred on by the sort of narcissistic elements of social media that tell us that every opinion is correct and right and that we should weigh in on everything, we haven't really, really thought, I think, very clearly and heavily about what's happening. Um, because uh, the reality is we are closer um, to some form of nuclear um, conflagration than we have been since 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Or I suppose, I think it's 1983, when Russia's early warning system detected an attack and one man um, who was in charge of that decision to return fire um, I, at the Grasshopper, whatever it's called, the early warning system, which is actually in Pripyat or Chernobyl, decided it must be a mistake. There's no way the Americans would launch one nuclear missile at us. Um, I actually did a podcast about this way back, the Chernobyl podcast. Go and have a listen to it if you want. And he stood down um, or the, re the retaliation and therefore saved us all probably from um, nuclear conflagration. And I think that an awful lot of people are uh, grandstanding. They're looking for clicks still. They're still in this, you know, kind of modern news cycle mentality where they think they have to pick a side even in something they don't really understand. And that means having an extreme position gets you more airtime, gets you more clicks. But like I said, the nuclear, um, the nuclear component of this uh, standoff of this war in Ukraine makes things very, very different to any other of the recent um, of the recent confrontations. So there are people on both sides who I think are misguided in um, aligning themselves with anything other than attempts at some form of diplomacy and the idea that the West really needs to get its act together and try and stand up to the bully in the room on some level. Um, but there's disruption to all sorts of energy markets, um, agriculture. So much of North Africa and the Middle East apparently gets its wheat and grain from Ukraine and Russia. Um, there will be disruption to many, many markets. And of course, they, there will also be markets who will see the marked up prices that we're all living through and will just go, well, the prices for everything have gone up. We might as well throw our hat in the ring as well. War is the greatest marker of inflation and considering that we just had huge 
a massive COVID financial injection into all areas of society. I mean, the trillions that were printed um, and, of course, the silence of the banks in the economic sector who, it seems, in 2021 had their best year ever as they were underwriting all of these loans, stayed quiet. And now we have a war where all of those um, costs just got higher. Um, it would seem to me that the potential for some form of economic collapse or sectors of the economy collapsing in many of the countries seems very, very high. Now, this will fit into certain elements of what some people would call the conspiracy theorists, the conspiracy theories idea of where we are headed in relation to um, financial and energy dependency on huge, the huge technocratic arms of the state. Um, and, you know, there are, of course elements when you dig down into this um, and look at, as we've talked about before, the World Economic Forum and, and the ideas, even as I said on episode one of the podcast, about the biometrics of a digital passport and a digital passport society, which they've discussed of um, implementing by the year 2030, which of course, as I said before, um, and I believe this, if you're a citizen of nowhere, but a a citizen of only a digital landscape and that digital landscape can be shut down by um, the huge arms of a state tech pharma corporation and um, deny you access to that new land, that digital landscape. We are, um, we should, we should be terrified and worried of that prospect. But of course, the, uh, the tiredness, the element of, but the percentage you have of energy to give up to, Giving a fuck about everything, I understand, is so completely um, reduced and removed because everyone feels so powerless. And then we're constantly fed images of bombed cities in the Ukraine and you just go, what the fuck can I do? I just will, might as well go out and have a 10 euro beer and, you know, work to live, live to work. Don't save any money, don't own any property, don't own anything you will be unhappy, etc., etc. Um, and I think those are the, unfortunately, the the places, the positions we're going to lurch from one to the other over the next while. Anyway, my friends, it's been a ramble. Um, I actually had another podcast recorded and in, in its place instead, but I felt, especially as what's happening in the world, that it would be ridiculous of me to try and ignore it. So there's been a lot of thoughts rushing through the grey matter. Try and conquer your feelings of inertia and tiredness and examine um, some of the things that are happening out there in the world. And we shall see you on tour next year if you're able to get to any of those Primordial Swallow the Sun in Rome shows. Links below. If you want to go to my Patreon and support the show, it's patreon.com, Alan Averill. Other podcasts of various nature and nonsense and discussions and songs and rehearsals and all sorts of cool stuff over there. So while we all still got some breath, let's have some communion in those spaces, my friends. This is Agitators Anonymous. I'm Alan Averill, just a singer in a heavy metal band. Stay free. Stay informed. Always be skeptical and remember, liberty is the most important word in the English language. Over and out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 